High-speed trains will change how we live, shifting commuters away from cars and tourists away from planes. Faster, more comfortable journeys can also help to connect communities. To find out how high-speed trains could change Britain for the better, head to wired.uk forward slash Hitachi dash rail. Coming up today, lucid dreams, lonely penguins, and our predictions for 2021. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tax, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Kelwala. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hi. This was the week when US President Donald Trump was suspended by Facebook and Twitter after posting a number of messages in support of a violent mob which stormed the US Capitol. Both platforms stopped short of a full ban, but there is growing pressure to take more definitive action. This was also the week when the UK recorded its highest daily number of deaths from COVID-19 since the first wave of the pandemic last spring. On January 6th, more than 1,000 deaths were recorded in the preceding 24 hours, with numbers of new cases reaching more than 60,000. It was also the week when more than 200 staff at Google's parent company, Alphabet, announced they are forming a union. The creation of the Alphabet Workers' Union follows walkouts and protests by Google staff in recent years. And finally, this was the week when Netflix raised the price of its subscriptions to reflect the increasing amount of money it is spending on content. In the UK, its standard monthly package will go up to £9.99 a month, while the premium one has risen from eleven ninety nine to thirteen ninety nine. So Netflix always used to be a bargain, right? And arguably, it's still pretty good value. But it's it's been creeping up quite a bit, right? I seem to remember paying six ninety nine when it first came out, or something like that. At what point does Netflix become a bit of a rip off? Like, how high can they go? I should say that there is still a, a basic package, which is five ninety nine, I think, and that hasn't gone up. But that's where you can only watch it in low quality on one screen. So none of this kind of rampant password sharing that we all do. Mm. I think that. Thirteen ninety nine is probably approaching the upper ceiling of what people will pay, but also we're not going anywhere for the next six months. So it's just very much a this is very much a price rise of, of sort of like what you're going to do about it. Kind of about They've got it, a don't pretty you think? captive audience, haven't they? Even with with Disney Plus coming along with really really uh, cheap deals, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to to see uh, how high they dare go. All right, what did we learn this week? The first week of twenty twenty one, Matt. Burgess. I have pulled out all the stops this week uh, and also I've had three weeks over Christmas to, to try and come up with something so this is this is my effort it, it's it's okay I would say. Uh, I learned that uh, Mount uh, Chimbozaro is the piece of land which is the furthest from the earth's centre. Uh, the peak of the mountain which is at 20,500 feet is uh, lower than uh, Mount Everest and uh, several other mountains as well. But because of the way uh, the earth is shaped and, and the thickness of the, the crust and all these types of things, um, it is actually the point which is the furthest away from the core of the planet. Um, and if you measure it like this, Everest is only the 10th um, furthest high point away from the centre of Earth. Good. That's very nice. Thank you, Matt Burgess. Amit, what did you learn this week? 
So we all know that Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon, but his uh, crewmate Buzz Aldrin actually got a much higher honour. He was the first man to urinate on the moon. Very nice. Yeah, I, I can... Mm. Did, did we really learn these this week or was this a frantic last minute dash to Wikipedia? Uh, me and I think me and Vicky were both racing down. Uh, well, I, I certainly <laughs> was racing down today. I learned on Reddit to try and find something before anyone else got to it. Um, but I did also remember another fact that I actually already knew, which was that in 1971, uh, Alan Shepard played golf on the moon. So if you, uh, well, there are a couple of golf balls on the moon just kind of kicking around a couple of hundred metres from where they, they landed um, Apollo whatever Apollo mission was land, landed on the moon in 1917, 1971, sorry. All set and ready for the establishment of a moon base and golf complex within the next decade. Vicky, what did you learn this week? I learned that if you give a sea urchin a hat, it will wear it. Apparently, some sea urchins like to hide under shells and rocks for protection, so some aquarium owners have found that if you 3D print a tiny hat for them, they will put it on. It's not a particularly <laughs> scientific fact, it's just a thing, but there are kind of photos on the internet, so I'm, I'm counting it. Um, and this comes via one of my friends and podcast listener, Joe. Thanks, Joe, for that one. So sorry, when, when you say they'll put it on and wear it, like, a sea urchin doesn't have hands, <laughs> so how does it put a hat on? It just sort of squelches into it. Well, so, you know, they have, like, spines, so it'll kind of, like, put a bunch of its spines in it, and then, you know, because it usually would hide and, like, put something over it for protection, it looks mm. like it's wearing the hat. This I'm not sure cute. if this is good for the sea urchins. I'm not <laughs> saying you should do this. I'm just Please saying it is a thing that someone has done. Well, it's good to have a hobby, 3D printing tiny hats for sea urchins. Sounds fun. Uh, I learned this week uh, that Lenin, as in Vladimir Lenin, uh, spoke English with an Irish accent. So apparently when he started to learn English, he hired an Irish tutor. It's a weird little factoid, but it was confirmed by none other than the author H.G. Wells, who met Lenin in Moscow in 1920, and noticed that he spoke with a distinctive Irish twang when he was conversing in English. Bit of a weird one. It's the 499th episode of the podcast. We've come a long way. We'll be doing something a little bit special for episode number 500, and we'd like you all to get involved. Email podcast at wired.co.uk. Tell us who you are and where you're listening from, and if you like how long you've been listening to the show. We know a lot of you have been with us from the very beginning, so do get in touch, and we'll aim to give as many of you a shout-out on the 500th edition of the show as possible. Podcast at wired.co.uk. But we've still got one more episode to get through until we get to number 500. So the first story of episode 499, Amit, is about lucid dreams. That's right. Yeah. So um, you might remember that earlier this year we reported on a rise in weird dreams that had apparently been sparked by lockdown. There was, there was something about living in these uh, unprecedented times and in inverted commas and being trapped in the house for 23 hours a day that meant that people were having particularly vivid dreams. Some people have also been trying to enhance their dream experiences deliberately through what's known as lucid dreaming. So lucid dreaming is a phenomenon where the dreamer becomes aware that they're dreaming while still in the dream and they can exert some control over what happens so they can decide to, you know, fly or to do something that they can't do in real life in their dream, whether that's, you know, going to the moon or skiing or, you know, a bunch of different things. And you can kind of steer the dream in the direction you want to go by being in this weird kind of semi-conscious but also dreaming state. 
Um, it's become increasingly popular during the pandemic. Uh, there was a significant spike in online searches for lucid dreaming during the first lockdown in March. Um, it's it's relatively uncommon. Um, around 55% of people have experienced one or more lucid dreams in their lifetime, but doing it regularly is quite rare. So about 23% of people have them once a month or more. But as seasonal lucid dreamers confirm, controlling dreams is no easy feat. It's the kind of thing that you can do, but it requires time and practice and dedication. So obviously tech companies are jumping in to try and remove all that with these kind of products and devices aimed to encourage lucid dreaming. But as we discovered this week, there are some concerns about these devices. So what do these devices actually do? You'd imagine that some of the tech in this space is uh, a little bit questionable, but how do they actually work? Yeah, so the kind of origin of these devices goes back to the 1990s. So scientists back then observed that shining lights in a participant's face while they were in um, what's called REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep, which is the kind of point at which you're most likely to dream they, they found that if you shine lights on a participant's face uh in what was probably quite a cruel experiment uh you get you get more lucid dreams um so these devices try and do the same thing so they kind of they wait till you're in rem sleep and then they try and stimulate your brain or kind of move you into this state where you're more likely to lucid dream so um there's a bunch of different devices. There's one called the Nova Dreamer, which was one of the early ones that's no longer on the market. There's a new one called Remy, which is a mask that supplies custom light patterns within, you know, it's like a sleep mask that you wear over your eyes and it shines kind of custom light patterns. This raised almost half a million pounds in a Kickstarter campaign and has attracted a bunch of attention. So um, the red flashing lights of the machine might be end up being incorporated into the person's dream as like the flashing lights of a fire truck and it acts as a signal within the dream to the sleeper that they are dreaming it's all very kind of inception-y but that's kind of the theory behind it anyway although the the extent to which it works is, is questionable and then there's other kind of less common devices that that zap the brain with mild electrical color currents to try and stimulate certain parts of the brain related to critical thinking and again the idea is to kind of try and wake the person up within the dream without actually waking them up in order to kind of induce the state of lucid dreaming. They all sound very good in theory and everything like that. But I guess the really big question on any of this is, does it actually work and does it make you dream like this? Yeah, and that's the problem. You know, these devices are very hyped up and they all sound very sort of, you know, compelling, you know, wear this headband and, you know, you know, enhance your dreams or whatever. But sleep experts warn that those devices don't really live up to their promises and that people actually risk doing damage to their physical and mental health by experimenting with them. So Remy has not lived up to its promise of allowing users to kind of dream better, which is a company's slogan. Uh, the devices attracted loads of negative reviews. They describe it as kind of fundamentally useless, super uncomfortable. People complain that the device just wakes them up. Some people complain about sleep paralysis, which is slightly frightening. Um, Daniel Love, who is a lead, leading uh, dreaming expert, says he's tried virtually every device on the market and that the technology behind them hasn't really changed much since they first emerged in the 1990s. He says the science behind them is very, very primitive and that they kind of prey on people's ignorance. Uh, you know, the devices are expensive, but the technology in them is basically technology you might buy in a pound shop. It's flashing lights and a timer and, you know, kind of really cheap electronics. He says it's a bit like strapping an alarm clock to your forehead. Um, he says sleep is absolutely vital to one's general health, but the producers of these devices rarely respect or acknowledge this. So these devices might not really have a great impact on your dreams. It seems that some people are, are quite disappointed, but do they, could they have a negative effect? Could they actually be dangerous? So 
the, the, the kind of the one the simpler ones that kind of flash lights into your eyes and things like that they might wake you up there's no real sign that they are inherently dangerous in terms of the actual process isn't dangerous the brain zapping ones we've written in the past about things like uh, transcranial direct current stimulation which is a, a low voltage current that people use while awake um and so those could have a similar effect to um to these kind of brain zapping sleep devices which you know if used incorrectly or used for too long could actually alter your brain chemistry so that could be dangerous and then there's also the kind of i guess the physical danger of these devices you know wearing a battery close to your face while asleep in a warm environment you know it's a risk uh, it's a fire risk more than anything uh, you know uh, as, is, as is true of any kind of electrical device that is put in that environment um then there's the kind of wider risk that these people who have bad experiences with these devices might be put off from the idea of lucid dreaming altogether, which would deny them some of the benefits of lucid dreaming, which could include everything from treating addiction through to treating PTSD or boosting memory. You said that the technology hasn't changed much since the 1990s, but if we've got projects that are raising half a million pounds or dollars on Kickstarter, there's obviously a lot of interest. So there must be some quote-unquote innovation in the space. So what new things are companies trying to try and crack the lucid dreaming market yeah so one um of the things they're looking at is kind of trying to pinpoint exactly what when rem sleep occurs so they're not just kind of randomly shining lights on on based on a timer system or whatever so um there's a product called the ZMAX headband, which combines the stimulation of the Remy headband, which I talked about, with an EEG rating of brainwaves. So, you know, this is this is exactly how REM sleep is measured and, and um, or can be measured by these brainwaves. You show a much kind of slower pattern of brainwaves when you're in REM sleep compared to normal brain activity. So this device kind of targets that and then tries to stimulate lucid dreaming using lights and tactile stimulation. Um it is, according to an unpublished study uh, from one of the researchers that we spoke to for this piece, uh, the most successful lucid dreaming device available with a 55% success rate uh, in inducing lucid dreams, which you know doesn't sound great, but that's kind of a measure of where these devices are at more generally. Um, it, it is, however, designed for kind of research. So it's, it's really aimed at like researchers who are conducting research into dreams rather than for consumer use. And actually, when it's used by individual consumers, the success rate drops to about 15 to 20%. Um, but, you know, there is, as you said, James, there's kind of constantly innovation going on. And the people we spoke to think that it won't be long until a combination of kind of brain scans and machine learning might help devices kind of pinpoint more accurately what's going on when we're dreaming when REM sleep starts and, and kind of how to influence it one of the device one of the people we spoke to thinks that in five or ten years we'll have a device with an almost 100 percent success rate for inducing lucid dreams but um until then i think it's kind of a buyer beware situation where you know if, if one of these devices sounds too good to be true it probably still is why did interest in these spikes so much during lockdown? Is it because we're all stuck at home for 23 hours a day and it's quite nice to fall asleep and have a dream over which you have some control? Is, is that what's going on here? Yeah, I think I, mean, I think we, we talked about it back then, how people were having kind of really weird dreams anyway during lockdown. Um, I, I suspect you'll probably see a similar pattern for for a lot of similar things to lucid dreaming, just kind of interesting kind of quirky hobbies that people maybe maybe wouldn't have had time to explore or wouldn't have had the inclination to explore when they had you know things to do outside but it's one of those things that you can try at home you know 
you don't really need any equipment or you know stuff for it you can try it without any devices you don't need to go outside to do it it's it's something that kind of helps people i guess get a sense of being away from their current situation without actually leaving it so maybe that's why it spikes in popularity i wonder if we've got any lucid dreamers out there in the podcast audience and anyone that's tried one of these devices and either had a good or bad experience do let us know podcast at wired.co.uk and there's lots more detail in the story which we published on the website which will include in the show notes our second story this week is about very very lonely penguins vicky mm-hmm. indeed um yeah so this this starts with a bit of a personal story actually um just over a year ago when travel was still a thing that people did uh, i went on holiday to argentina Uh, And while I was there, I visited a place called Ushuaia, which is right at the southernmost tip of Argentina. It's known locally as the end of the world because the next place you get to is basically Antarctica. So it's probably not really the um, kind of typical environment you might imagine if you if you think of the country of Argentina, which obviously is a huge place uh, with quite different climates. Uh, throughout the country. Uh, Anyway, one of the top tourist attractions in Ushuaia is penguins. On an island in the Beagle Channel called Martillo Island, there are colonies of Magellanic and Gentoo penguins. If you don't know your penguins, Magellanic penguins are are quite weird. They're probably not what you think of when you think of penguins. They are black and white and waddle, um, but they're rather small and they dig burrows underground for their nests, which is quite strange penguin behaviour. Uh, Gen 2 penguins are a bit larger and they collect rocks to build their nests off the ground. So they're quite different types of penguin, but they're both there on Martigio Island. But when I visited, I was surprised to see among these penguins another species. One single king penguin stood on the beach looking out to sea. He was the only one. King penguins much bigger than, than those two species I mentioned. So he stood out like a sore thumb. So, so as you said, you know, Ushuaia is kind of famous for penguins. So why were you so surprised to see this particular species there? So basically that there isn't a colony of king penguins on Martijo Island. Uh, and the king penguin is, is a much more typically penguiny penguin. So it's the second largest type after the emperor penguin. Uh, it's got orange cheeks and yellow orange plumage at the top of its white belly. They're not known to live on Martijo Island. So it was surprising to see one there. Uh, And afterwards, I couldn't stop thinking about this single penguin on its own. Why was it there? Where did it come from? Was it lonely? Uh, I recognise I'm probably projecting here. Um, I don't know if penguins are even capable of feeling loneliness. I'm probably anthropomorphising quite a lot. Um, But yeah, I did. I was, you know, my thoughts were with this penguin. And so for a long time, I was trying to find anyone who knew anything about it, um, which was quite difficult. But eventually I tracked down some penguinologists in Ushuaia to find out more. And they have, of course, answered all your questions. Uh, and now you know what the deal is with this penguin, right? Well, not quite. <laughs> it turns out this penguin is a bit of a mystery. Oh, first up, he or she is actually not alone. So we don't have to be too concerned about the penguin being lonely. The researchers in Ushuaia have actually been catching king penguins on their camera traps for some years now, and they reckon they've seen a maximum of about six at a time. It's actually really hard to know exactly how many there are because they can't distinguish between individual penguins on the cameras. Uh, So they don't know if the same ones are coming back or different ones keep visiting the island, Um, but they can basically judge it just on how many they've seen together in one frame. 
Um, so they know there's at least that many. Uh, but really, aside from that, we don't know much about them at all. Andrea Rea Ray, one of the researchers I spoke to who works at scientific organisation CADIC, uh, says that they likely got there by accident. King penguins basically swim around looking for food. They can travel really long distances. Uh, but when it's time to molt their feathers, they head back to land. Now, usually they'd go back to the colony that they came from. But she hypothesises that maybe the penguins were nearby, in the ocean, looking for food, fishing. It was time to molt. They looked around, saw other penguins on Martijo Island. And even though they were a different species, they thought, oh, great, let's just head over there. If you look at this place on a map, it's kind of appropriate to call it the end of the world. It is so, so far from anywhere. So even if these penguins were out on a hunt for food, it seems extraordinary that they'd end up here because it's a really long distance from anywhere else that we know that these penguins actually live or lived previously. Yeah, um, there's a few places that they could have come from. And actually, the, the two colonies that are on Martigia Island, so the Gentoo penguins and the Magellanic penguins, they are quite recent colonies. Um, you know, they haven't been there for decades and decades and decades. Um, I think the Magellanics uh, have been there since the 70s and the Gentoos since around the 90s. Um, so they also kind of started elsewhere and then some penguins decided for whatever reason um, to, to start up on this island and the colonies have grown since. So we don't know where these king penguins started from, where where have they come from, but there are some ideas. So the Gentoo colony, we know from genetic testing that those penguins originally came from a colony on the Falkland Islands. Um, now there's also king penguins on the Falkland Islands, so they could have come from there too. We've also got king penguins across the border in Chile, um, there's quite a few, uh, there's a few places there that they could have come from. And then there's some islands sort of between Argentina and Antarctica. There's an island called Staten Island and there's one called South Georgia. And both of those have king penguin colonies. So there's multiple places they might have come from. Um, as I say, we don't really know whether they purposefully came to Martigio Island or whether they just ended up there by accident. Uh, there are reasons that, that penguins might leave a colony if a colony gets too big, so there's too much competition, if there's not enough food source, if there's too many predators. Um, you can see kind of mass migration and new colonies form. But here it seems like there's, there's sort of a small group that have ended up in this new place. The reason we don't really know much more about what's going on here is because the researchers haven't done much testing or really anything on the king penguins in particular, because there are so few of them there, they don't want to disturb them. Um, so they're kind of just leaving them be. Um, and yeah, it means it's all a bit of a mystery. I guess like, you know, you kind of describe these islands and there's some of them have got penguin colonies, some of them haven't and all these different areas with different colonies. Is this kind of how a new colony basically starts as a penguin or a few penguins kind of randomly end up somewhere and then end up founding a new colony almost by accident? It can be, and that's sort of what's happened with, for example, the Gentoo penguins on Martigio Island. But it may be quite difficult for these king penguins to establish a colony. Uh, the researchers think that when they first started showing up, they might have been juveniles because they didn't seem to, to breed. Um, but in the past few years, they have managed to lay an egg. And last year, for the first time, they actually hatched a chick. But the chick didn't live very long. Um, we don't know why. We don't know what killed it. It could have been that it was quite warm at the time uh, for Ushuaia. 
Although also it's, it could be very difficult for a lone king penguin chick to survive winter and the cold temperatures on the other end of the spectrum because king penguin chicks often huddle together to stay warm. Um, and obviously if you've only got one, it can't really do that very effectively. And king penguins in particular take quite a while to have and raise a chick. So starting a colony from just a few individuals could be quite tricky and certainly would take a long time. Doesn't mean it's impossible. You mentioned um, at really the start of the section that after you went there, you were obviously really intrigued about what uh, this this at the time you thought one king penguin was doing um, and, and were on the hunt for the answers about it. Do you know if you're ever going to get to a stage where you'll get some proper answers about uh, what is actually going on with it, with these penguins there and if uh, the researchers are studying them any further? So at the moment, they're not specifically studying too much about the king penguins. Their work is focused still on the Magellanic and Gentoo colonies. And for the past year, they actually unfortunately haven't been able to get out and study the penguins much anyway because of COVID-19 and restrictions preventing them for, from doing so. They were able to get out and change the batteries and memory cards in their camera traps, uh, but they couldn't visit, That they couldn't take their usual samples. Um, and they say this could have a real impact on research, especially those longer term population studies and, and projects. Um, their observations of the king penguins at the moment have really come when they're doing other work. Um, and they kind of caught caught them by accident. So the king penguins seem to be particularly friendly with the Gentoo penguins in particular, often hanging around their nests. And apparently one of the um, kind of tourist group leaders says that he thinks one of the king penguins thinks it's a Gentoo penguin <laughs> um, because of the way it behaves around uh, sort of their colony. Uh, but in general, the researchers say that it's really important to study penguins because they are, uh, they say, sentinels of the marine environment. So by studying penguin behaviour, like where they go, what they eat, that kind of thing, you can get lots of information about the marine environment beyond just the immediate welfare of the penguins themselves. And this could give us insight into, for example, how the climate crisis is affecting marine environments. So I'm sure they will continue to keep a close eye on all of the penguins. Um, and, you know, you never know, maybe in a few decades time, we'll have uh, a new colony to be interested in. It's a really nice story for reminding us all that life still goes on beyond the walls of our houses and flats. Uh, do have a read of the full story. We'll include a link in the show notes, as we do with everything that we talk about on the podcast. The third thing that we're bringing on the show this week isn't a story, but uh, it's a challenge, if you like. Earlier this week, we set ourselves the task of coming up with optimistic and pessimistic predictions for 2021. To avoid us all talking about COVID-19, I got us to split into different categories. So Amit, let's start with you. I got you to gaze into your crystal ball and come up with some optimistic and pessimistic predictions for the year in culture. Yeah, I would like the record to state that I wanted my pessimistic prediction to be the collapse of Western civilization, but James wouldn't let me have that as mine. Um, just, just if it happens i want to say that i called it um so yeah my optimistic from it, uh, prediction is that i think well this is the year we'll finally see platforms clamp down on hate speech you know we've seen twitter and facebook this week uh, take the unprecedented step of banning donald trump and i think that the scenes in washington will shock people into action so i think with democratic control over the house and senate following the georgia runoff we're likely to see a much greater push for regulation of big tech in the united states and i think therefore the rest of the world Two, you know, we'll follow. Obviously, we've seen kind of EU take leadership on this, but I think 
the fact that these platforms are by and large US based means that the changes they make there are the ones that will kind of become the default setting. Um, I think we'll see Donald Trump end up getting banned from Twitter once he no longer has the office of the president to hide behind. His supporters may migrate to other platforms like Parler. They might continue to organise via Facebook groups. But I, th- I think and I hope that the damaging impact that algorithms have played in radicalising people will be investigated. And I hope that Facebook will make sweeping changes to stop such things happening in future. So that's my optimistic prediction. So before we go to the pessimistic prediction, so we're recording this at about two o'clock UK time on Thursday. So by the time people listen to this, Trump may in fact have been banned from Twitter. He's on his final strike, allegedly. Um, will this fix these big platforms? Is there a way of fixing these big platforms or are they so structurally complex that it's, it's almost window dressing, isn't it? I mean, removing Trump will make a difference, but is, is it going to make enough of a difference? Or are we really waiting years for quite chunky legislation to be brought in to make them operate in a very different way? I think that the challenge is, is not just fixing the platforms, but also like, like, I feel like fixing the platform isn't going to fix the problems that they've caused within society, I guess. Like, you know, if you fix Twitter and, and ban hate speech uh, properly, then a lot of people will just flee to other social networks and and maybe they won't maybe they won't have as much of a uh pull on the sort of public conversation if they're kind of you know annexed off in in parlor or, or telegram or wherever but you know um in a way i don't know whether it's better to have people on a major platform having these discussions in kind of the plain light of day or kind of hidden away in you know groups that you know people don't have access to that we can't see what they're talking about i'm not sure whether that's better or worse because obviously on twitter the conversations then get amplified by mass media but on on parlor and telegram they don't to the same extent but equally there's no oversight or scrutiny of of what's going on what discussions are having what things are being planned so it's a really tricky conundrum it's quite telling that your optimistic prediction is tainted with pessimism uh so let's go on to (laughs) full pessimism What's your pessimistic prediction for the culture industry in 2021? Yeah, so there were a lot of options to choose from. I've, I've focused on the cinema industry. Uh, my pessimist, pessimistic prediction is that the cinema industry is going to take years to cover, recover from the pandemic and that it may never fully be the same again. So um, this week I spent some time looking at the film releases that have been scheduled in for 2021 um, and the kind of release dates. But even those release dates seem hugely optimistic in the wake of the new variant of coronavirus and the spikes that we're seeing in the UK and elsewhere. Um, You know, last year was obviously a year of kind of cinema chaos. We saw a lot of studios delaying things, bringing their big releases straight to home streaming. Um, My pessimistic prediction is that once people have become used to paying for a release at home on the day it hits cinemas, many of them will not go back. Um, we've also seen an impact on the production of new films. So I think what we'll end up with is is a year of big releases going straight to streaming, not making as much money as they would have, and then nothing new kind of coming to cinemas for a while. And I think it's really, really hard to see kind of local cinema chains, local multiplexes surviving that that storm. And it's either fortunate or unfortunate that all of this is taking place at a time when Netflix's old right old rivals the 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 old industry is is finally playing catch up so we've got Disney Plus HBO Max Peacock lots of new streaming services coming online and attracting loads and loads of new customers Disney Plus particularly has exceeded all expectations and a lot of that has been built on the release of major new films exclusively on on Disney Plus so i mean it, it it's a pessimistic prediction but is it the worst thing in the world if 
these streaming services, which we're paying quite a bit of money for, have more of the stuff that we want to watch on them when we want to watch it. Yeah, and, and it's also more accessible to people who can't make it to the cinema for whatever reason, whether it's cost or, or you know, disability or, or anything like that. Like, you know, there's definite... It's just a big seismic change, I think, and uh, you know it's not necessarily a bad thing. And actually, I think the kind of saving grace, one of the saving graces of, of the fact that Netflix etc. have got so much money to spend, is that it has really kind of propped up the the creative industries around the, the cinema industry. You know, like people are still making high budget films and television shows. It's just they're just not being shown in cinemas as they used to be. So you know, a lot of the people that would have worked on a blockbuster cinema release yeah maybe they're working on a, a a high budget netflix show instead but you know those jobs are still hopefully going to be there but it's just sad to kind of see that like a way of you know something that's been part of our society for a century or more kind of slowly disappearing i think is quite sad it's another way of the high street uh being hollowed out particularly when you're talking about local multiplexes which aren't based on industrial estates out of town you know these old cinemas are are based in the centres of communities, right? Yeah, you you were talking before about like this idea that we haven't really been able to make any kind of new exciting memories during uh, the pandemic because we've all been locked down. And I think like the cinema and and theatre and music festivals and and, you know live music, these kind of like shared experiences, I think are really important. And I think we're going to see a lot of those companies kind of uh, folding. And I think I'm sure new ones will eventually come up and take their place. But, you know, these kind of long held institutions that, that have been going for decades or more may not make it through the next five years, which I think is really sad. And a lot of them operating on very, very fine margins. And if even a small percentage of people are persuaded to watch the latest release on Disney Plus or Netflix rather than going to the local, local multiplex, it remains to be seen how that ends up panning out. All right, um, Vicky. We asked you to focus on the environment. So what are your optimistic well let's get the yeah, let's get the optimistic prediction for the environment in 2021 first. What's gonna be good? Yeah, well, you know what? In 2021, I think we will take the next major global step towards net zero. And I'll explain why. In 2015, you probably remember, 196 parties adopted the Paris Agreement an international legally binding treaty on climate change with the intention of limiting global heating levels. This was seen as a real kind of diplomatic breakthrough, a real sort of international effort to finally take action against climate change. And that was a a climate change conference, COP21. In November this year, the UK is hosting COP26, and it's a particularly important one for several reasons. In the Paris Agreement, there's a mechanism which requires countries to report back every five years and submit new enhanced goals to combat the climate crisis. So sort of ramping up from their initial commitments in 2015. The conference was supposed to be in 2020, but was postponed because of COVID. So this really is the first kind of landmark conference after the Paris Agreement. Some countries have submitted their enhanced plans already, including the UK, which has a target of reducing emissions by 68% in 2030 compared to levels in 1990. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to solve everything. I'm sure there'll be a lot of criticism as well. And, you know, there's always more that countries can be doing. Some people won't be meeting their targets. Some people maybe won't have as ambitious targets as we'd hoped for. But there are potentially a few other reasons to be optimistic about COP26. One of them is that the delay actually could kind of work in people's favour because it means that it will now happen with Joe Biden in office as US president 
Donald Trump, of course, pulled the US out of the Paris Agreement, but Biden has said that he will make the US rejoin. COVID has potentially also given countries something of an impetus to consider climate in their recovery plans, um, almost a bit of a, a kind of um, kick up the bum to kind of think, how can we build back better, as uh, as Boris has been speak, speaking about. And the fact that it's happening specifically in the UK, it's in Glasgow, will, of course, put particular pressure on the UK to make meaningful progress. Um, so I, I do think it's a reason for optimism. And actually, if you think back to 2015 and the 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 feeling around climate change then and these commitments to the Paris Agreement, I feel like the conversation has moved on quite a lot. Um, and so I, I do feel optimistic. I think it's easy when you're thinking about the constant spectre of climate change and the climate crisis. It feels like this impossible thing. Um, but I feel like, you know, maybe progress has been made in those past five years. And perhaps this is the moment where we can make a real change to to what our plans are to keep things in check maybe i'm being wildly idealistic <laughs> well we did ask you to be optimistic so that's fair i mean and there are reasons for optimism right the uk now goes several weeks or months at a time without using any coal to um power power generation we're using more and more renewable energy particularly wind where the uk is a, a world leader to generate that electricity and as more and more of our infrastructure shifts to electric more electric cars then renewable energy will become more and more useful as it's brought on board. But maybe just to tinge your optimism with a bit of pessimism, even though the pandemic's meant that COP26 is delayed, it it also means that countries have a lot less money. The, the cost of the pandemic has been huge and the cost of tackling the climate crisis is economically huge, even if it's essential. So... Do you think there's an argument to be made that countries won't want to splash the cash on this when they have so many other things to contend with, particularly as we're imagining 2021 will still be very much about COVID-19? That's definitely true. I mean, there's so many pressures on countries around the world right now, right, that it's sort of, you know, there's maybe competition there for where people's focus can be. Um, But I think, you know, because COVID is requiring countries to draw up kind of new economic recovery plans, it also gives an opportunity to maybe think how, you know, what changes can be made, um, given that we're having to come up with new plans regardless. And, you know, some countries have put in green requirements into those. Um, And so, you know, it could it could be seen either way. You could see it as um, you know, this is going to make it really hard to put money into green solutions, or you could see it as this is an opportunity to start with a fresh slate and think about how we would actually build things today if we were starting from scratch. So yeah, depends how optimistic or pessimistic you're feeling on the day, I suppose. <laughs> and in terms of pessimism, what's your pessimistic prediction for the climate in 2021? My pessimistic prediction, I'm kind of cheating because I think this is almost like 100% guaranteed to happen, unfortunately. Uh, But my pessimistic prediction is that there will be a major deadly climate event in 2021. Uh, In the past year, we've seen lots of climate disasters. We've seen wildfires ravage Australia and California, causing hundreds of deaths. There were record numbers of hurricanes and storms in the US. There were flash floods in Indonesia 
a major earthquake in Turkey and Greece. There's Typhoon Vamco towards the end of the year, which caused more than 100 deaths in the Philippines, not to mention ongoing droughts and floods that often affect the poorest communities the most. We know that extreme weather events are made more likely and can be exacerbated by climate change. And it seems inevitable, therefore, that many natural disasters caused or exacerbated by climate change will occur in 2021. And I predict that at least one of these will be a major incident, unfortunately, claiming many lives. It's not cheerful, but it's highly likely. And as these events become more severe and more regular, we're also going to see, I imagine, an uptick in the number of climate refugees, which is going to become a really, really big issue as even though the the changes that we're making in the short term to tackle the climate crisis won't really have an impact for many, many years because things are already running out of control, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the nature of the climate crisis, right? You can see sort of immediate repercussions from big events like hurricanes um, or bushfires. But then there's also the constant increase of of temperatures, the constant kind of effect of uh, ongoing disasters and, you know, things happening one after the other. And that, that, you know, it's sort of happening all at once and also suddenly um, you know it's it's impossible to kind of measure all the all the impacts in one go um so yeah you're right there'll be sort of the constant theme of um you know crops failing climate refugees um conflicts exacerbated by climate change as well as the sudden effects of natural disasters i think one thing that's really interesting is that like the it's almost like the impacts of climate change on the human side of thing almost make it politically harder to make the changes that we need to make to get climate change sorted in a sense like we've seen over the last five or ten years how kind of nationalism and climate denialism have sort of gone hand in hand in a lot of places and actually it's almost like a vicious cycle where the the political things that are driven by climate change ultimately because of a lack of resources or, or, or land scarcity or whatever kind of then have this knock-on effect of making it harder to pass legislation that, that is going to bring our carbon dioxide levels down. Yeah, and obviously because this is an international problem, that's what makes it all the more difficult. You know, even if some countries are making these commitments and putting lots of effort and lots of money into trying to reduce emissions and bring down levels of carbon, if everyone's not on the same page, then it you know you're reducing the impact that that can have. Uh, so yeah, it's it's not going to be easy. <laughs> But to go back to your point of optimism, and, th- and then we'll move on, Vicky, um, with a Democratic president in the White House and uh, a Democratic Congress and Senate, the US should be able to, again, um, as, uh, as, as has been said before, lead the world in this sort of stuff. Um, and, and hopefully um, it won't remain an outlier for too much longer. Matt Burgess, I asked you to put on your favourite hat, your security hat and come up with some optimistic and pessimistic predictions for the world of security in 2021. Let's start with the optimism. Okay, and this is probably, this is tinged with a little bit of pessimism, uh, but in the respect that I don't necessarily think it will happen, it would be, it's more hopeful than anything. Um, But it would be good to see uh, some, this beginning, uh, the very first stages of setting some rules or standards around um, hacking um, by governments and uh, nation state actors. So criminals are always going to be sort of, 
criminal groups are always going to be trying to profiteer from hacking with ransomware and fraud and things like that. But it would be good to see uh, some sort of dialogue on the sort of international level hacking. So recently, just before Christmas, we saw the solar winds breach, which uh, happened mostly in the US, but has affected sort of uh, entities elsewhere as well, which saw a supply chain attack give uh, attackers believed to be from Russia, access to US government systems. Uh, and it's a bit of a wake up call uh, because everybody was concerned about US election interference. But at the same time, this uh, giant breach of systems was going on. Um, and it's easy to imagine that the US will be investigating or retaliating in some sort of way at the moment. Uh, but I sort of hope and, and it would be good to see a bit of dialogue going on between countries about what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. Uh, for countries to do we've seen uh, lots of countries over the years particularly uh, China Iran North Korea uh, engaging in sort of cyber espionage and stealing secrets and things like that and there's been talk of um systems uh, such as critical infrastructure, power grids and things like that being compromised and having vulnerabilities uh, exploited in them and, and people sitting with countries sitting within other countries' networks. And we've seen ransomware attacks on hospitals and stealing of uh, or attempted stealing of uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And I think that it's time that sort of countries came together a little bit and uh, said, these are at the very least some red lines about what we can't do. We can't go after medical institutions. We shouldn't look to break into somebody's power network and, and uh, cause blackouts and cut off um, power supplies to homes. So I think it's possibly unlikely because countries will always be uh, acting in sort of uh, some ways to gather intelligence on others. But I think there should be um, this should be the year when we start to have conversations about this. Some of this sort of stuff isn't acceptable. And it probably helps in a strange way that the nature of these attacks is having a more tangible impact on individuals. So when we're talking about ransomware attacks against hospitals, well, that means that hospital machinery doesn't work, that patients can't have the operations that they need, which might be life-saving. And we came quite close in 2020 to having the first person die um, as a result of a ransomware attack, although a, a court case um, against the hackers wasn't quite successfully made. So in terms of visibility, people are a lot more aware of this sort of stuff, which might help to ramp up the pressure on rogue states that are behaving in this way and non-rogue states for that matter. Definitely. And I think that is a case of lots of countries will be doing something, whether it's trying to gain political intelligence about what uh, areas of economic growth or or, or things like that that other countries are going to focus on and like traditional sort of like spy espionage but i think when you're coming to things that are uh, potentially destructive and can cause danger to life uh, and all of those types of areas there needs to be like people need to really internationally at the highest levels sit back and say we can't accept some of these things happening um and there should be sort of retaliation in terms of like sanctions and things like that put in place when a countries are found to uh, have been behaving in this way so uh, i think it's something that's long overdue as like a big discussion and implementing some laws on on this type of behavior but something that's pretty much very well very much needed optimism tinged with pessimism once again uh <laughs> let's go for all out pessimism what's your pessimistic prediction for security in 2021 
So I think that there's there's probably quite a few areas that I could have picked in terms of like the way that technology is being used from sort of uh, facial recognition to predictive policing systems to the way that algorithms are being used untransparently uh, in sort of like the public sector and things like that. But I've decided to go for a, uh, a more of a classic one, uh, which is a new attack on end-to-end encryption. So the type of encryption that's used in messaging apps from WhatsApp to Signal to protect people's conversations and uh, make sure that data and things sent between people can't be accessed by anybody other than the, the sender and the recipient. Um, and we've already seen it towards the end of last year, uh, renewed sort of attacks uh, politically on this type of uh, encryption. Uh, and this is as Facebook has uh, pledged to actually make um, uh, Instagram and WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger all use the same sort of encryption platform and, and basically sort of as this encryption method is growing and becoming more popular uh, we're going to see more political uh, conversations around breaking this or making sure that people uh, that data can be accessed and it's something that these types of discussions about end-to-end encryption go back sort of 20-30 years uh, and have been sort of like a regular drumbeat in the in the technological uh sort of political sphere but i think that this year 2021 we're going to see that come back again uh and that's going to be a frequent discussion um for probably uh this podcast and and, uh and what we're reporting on and other stuff as well so absolutely watch this space on that one this is a very direct attack on the foundations of the digital era you know when when people talk about breaking end-to-end encryption they often use um, examples of what we used to do in the past, sort of steaming open envelopes. If you could do that in the 1930s and 40s, why can't you do the same to end-to-end encrypted messages in 2021? But the the tension here is that that doesn't work. Once you break encryption in one instance, you break it for everyone. So there's going to be a day of reckoning for this line of argument. And which side individual nations come down on could have a really, really profound effect on how the entire internet operates. It, it fundamentally could. There is a lot of um, a lot of the sort of conversations around um, not necessarily breaking into an encryption, but maybe banning it or or, or trying to uh, introduce backdoors or methods that where data can be accessed is led by uh, some of the five eyes countries the uh, which are the the big powers in terms of uh, sort of like intelligence agencies sharing data so that's something that is where this conversation is led but i think the the key point that you sort of flagged there james is that if you break this type of encryption for one person then it can be broken for anybody and if if there is a way for an intelligence agency to have a back door into uh into being able to access the data that sent and messages that are sent across here there's no reason why somebody else can't replicate that so it's not just uh you're not just breaking it for one person you're breaking it for billions absolutely so finally um i had the task of coming up with optimistic and pessimistic predictions for covid19 in 2021 so we sit at a time now where a thousand people a day are dying of this disease in the uk and we're about to go through the well we're in the middle of the worst wave of the virus and there's far worse to come, it would seem. But it seems plausible and is already becoming the case that many nations will entirely eliminate COVID-19 through a mix of social distancing measures, border controls and vaccine rollout. I mean, New Zealand has 
done this already without even administering a single dose of the vaccine. But other countries are getting there now as well. So it's especially true for island nations. So the Pacific island nation of Palau, for example, it has a population of 18,000 people and has already received 2,800 doses of the Moderna vaccine. And if all goes well, it should be the first country in the world to vaccinate its entire population against COVID-19. The Vatican, the world's smallest sovereign state, it's only got about 450 or so residents, is on track to vaccinate its entire population by early February. Now, of course, speedy and successful vaccine rollouts for smaller and island nations could also help to ease the economic strain that's been placed on them through the pandemic. They might not have had a lot of COVID-19 cases, let alone deaths, but the restrictions on the global economy have really hit them very hard. So once they've got vaccinated populations, some of the restrictions that have hammered the global economy could be eased. And we should start to see, even if it's inequitable, a return to normal across many nations. And it might not be the nations you expect. I I don't know what people think about this idea of the pandemic ending in different parts of the world at very different times. I mean, there's there's cause for optimism if you happen to be lucky enough to live in those particular countries. But we are, I think, going to enter a period of quite big inequity between countries that are able to eliminate this thing and company and, and countries that still have a really, really bad problem with it for potentially years to come. I think we're going to... It's not just about countries, it's about groups of people as well. I think, you know, effectively what we're going to have is a situation where kind of people from from wealthier countries that have been able to vaccinate more people are going to basically have be able to travel and go pretty much wherever they want, whereas a lot of the world is going to remain closed off to a lot of people who haven't been able to get vaccinated for, for a long time. Yeah, I have to admit it was quite difficult to come up with something that was truly, truly optimistic uh, about the pandemic. But you you do feel for particularly remote island nations where the economic damage has been profound, even if the healthcare damage has been almost non-existent, that there is an opportunity there, particularly in Australasia. Um, Australia's got the pandemic under control for the time being, New Zealand and a lot of these smaller island nations that there could be a whole continent there that has this pandemic under control and is able to open up its borders, even if it's just within its own local geography. Um, So pessimistically, and this kind of links to my slightly crap optimism, we're going to see a really dangerous inequity in vaccine distribution. So there's going to be this deadly divide between the richest and poorest countries, which is what you were talking about there, Amit. So much of the developed world will get access to substantial quantities of at least one COVID-19 vaccine by September 2021. But it's a really different story for poorer nations. So the entire of the African continent is unlikely to get much of any vaccine until the middle of 2022 at the earliest The same is true for much of the Middle East, the Caribbean, Southeast Asia and South America. So COVAX, which is the global effort to secure sufficient vaccine supply for all countries, has secured 2 billion doses of several vaccine candidates. But concerns remain about when it will deliver these vaccines and to whom. And there's also the issue of those vaccines being approved by regulators. And then it's 2 billion doses, but that's only 1 billion people. So compare that to Israel, for example, one of the richest countries in the world, which has a world-leading 
COVID-19 vaccine rollout plan. It's already inoculated 20% of its population against COVID-19 at a rate of 150,000 vaccinations per day. So much as it will be good news for these countries that are able to really get on top of the pandemic, we're going to see an awful lot of countries, particularly the poorest countries, that are left waiting and won't even have vaccines for more than a year. And that will mean potentially that the pandemic rages on in a really, really dangerous way in certain parts of the world for a very long time to come. It does seem there are many sort of reasons to be uh, optimistic about sort of maybe people's individual circumstances in countries that get it under control or even just with uh, taking the UK, for example, sort of potentially more freedoms being allowed to people uh, once there are a lot of more vaccine availability and, and people have had it administered. But as you say, James, that uh, it is one of the stark realities that things aren't going to go back to normal in uh, inverted co- commas, quotes, whatever, uh, until for the whole world for a very long time still, there's still going to be a knock-on effect uh, for countries around the planet and travel and the economy uh, and everything else for, for quite a while. So um, even though there is reason to be optimistic, I think there still needs to be some realism to, to the overall situation. Happy 2021. So there are predictions, but what are yours? What's giving you cause for pessimism and optimism as we start this new year podcast at wired.co.uk with anything that's on your mind and a reminder that the next episode of the wired uk podcast is our 500th episode we've been around for an awful long time and we hope to be around for an awful long time yet but do get in touch let us know who you are where you're listening from and uh, if you like how long you've been listening to the show for. We'll hope to give as many of you as possible a shout out on the next episode of the podcast where we'll do something a little bit special to mark our 500th anniversary. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening as always. Stay safe and we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.